0: call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. AT and T.
1: You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack
2: Hey everybody! Welcome to Movie Crush Friday Interview Edition, and boy, everybody, this was uh, this is a big one. We got the opportunity uh, to talk to Meryl Poster, um, and she was kind of laughing. I told her a few times during the episode that we don't we don't get the likes of her in here very often. Uh, but Meryl is a is a producer, sort of a legendary producer in Hollywood um, for many many years. Has worked on oh boy, I mean, the list of films that she's had her fingerprints on as producer, executive producer, executive in charge of production. I mean, you name it. It's um, really, really stunning. Movies like uh, Chicago and Chocolat and Cider House Rules and Copland and uh, Beautiful Girls, the movie that we decided to talk about, actually, um, because that was the one that she enjoyed working on the most. Um, It's a really uh, pretty impressive resume. And uh, if, if I thought about it too much before we recorded, I probably would have been a little too nervous to sit down with her. But we had a great talk about producing and what that means and how she got her start in the business and how scrappy she was early on to uh, to make her name uh, as a woman in Hollywood. And uh, it was really, really cool and enlightening. And um, I just want to say, too, the sort of the elephant in the room with Meryl is that she was Harvey Weinstein's a sort of right-hand person for many, many years and worked at Miramax as head of production and uh, amazing job during their great, great run of amazing films. And, um, you know, she was obviously a little bit nervous about uh, being interviewed, something that she doesn't do much anymore. Uh, but, you know, she left Miramax, uh, I think about seven years ago. I told her that that wasn't what this show was about and that the criminal justice system had had taken care of that situation and there was no need to, to drag her through that again. And she really appreciated that. And I think that was, uh, that was definitely the right call to make for this uh, episode. And, uh, but I did want to throw that out there um, because, you know, she worked for Miramax for many, many years, one of the, one of the great production companies for many, many years, but we all know how that turned out. And I was just thankful that uh, she is doing great. And she has a great new podcast with our network. Uh, Not new. They actually have just uh, been granted a season two called Call Your Grandmother, which everyone should listen to. And we're going to talk about that on this episode as well. So here we go with the great, legendary, super awesome Meryl Poster, my new pal, on the movie Beautiful Girls and kind of a little retrospective of her whole career. Are you in New York right now? Yes. How's New York right now?
1: I mean, it was freezing yesterday. I wasn't here. I've been in Florida. I came back. I mean, truth be told, I came back from Florida last week.
2: Oh, okay, good. And I was there for a month, so. That's nice. Is New York still pretty um, ghost town or?
1: Kind of, kind of. I mean, when you go to certain, in my area, it's not. I'm on the Upper West Side. Uh-huh. So my area isn't. But if you go to certain parts of the city, it's really strange. Like if you're Midtown. Right. It's really, really weird yeah. to see that.
2: Yeah, and it's very a upsetting place. when
1: you see stores closed. It's it's beyond upsetting. I, I hate it. Yeah, and everybody's going like there's like one place to go now, like happening place to go now for lunch and dinner. It's like the same place. Everyone's like, how come you were there? I said because it's the happening place that everybody wants to go to, so they pick that place. Right. <laughs> because it used to be, you know, you used to have choices. Uh huh. But now, so you you know there would the restaurant at Barney's mm-hmm. or um michael's i mean there were so many choices now it's avra on 60th street for lunch and dinner
2: oh really because mm-hmm. they're doing it the right way i guess
1: yeah it's a big what, restaurant
2: uh well i'm kind of curious you know we always love to talk about the people's youth and uh on the show and kind of what inspired and we we don't get uh people of the likes of you on the show very often so thank you for coming on by the way it's a pleasure <laughs> Um, But what was your childhood like as far as movies go? Where did you first get that bug?
1: Um, I probably first got my movie bug from my grandmother. My grandmother um, grew up on the Upper West Side, and she loved movies as a kid. And she even wrote about skipping school, leaving school to go to a movie. Mm -hmm. So she was more the kind of grandmother who wasn't playing on the floor with us, but would take us to see my brother and I to see movies. That's when we were with her. That's basically what we did because she lived in Manhattan. It was easy to get there. And um, and and we went to movies. I remember seeing uh, well, this frightened me, but I remember seeing Chitty Chitty Bang Bang.
2: Oh, yeah. Scared me a lot. I think it scared me, too.
1: Yeah. And when I saw Wicked, the monkeys freaked me out. You know, I went back to that time. I thought it was a really scary movie.
2: Yeah, the monkeys and then uh, Wizard of Oz, too, always had a problem mm-hmm. with the the flying monkeys. It was very yeah. scary for me.
1: And then um, I remember her taking me to see Bedknobs and Broomsticks, which uh-huh. was playing at Radio City Music Hall. Oh, yeah. Um. So she took us to the movies, my brother and I, a lot. And my parents were big moviegoers as well. My parents... W- I think they thought they were in show business. My dad was in the Garmin Center, and I think uh-huh. people in the Garmin Center kind of felt that they were part of the entertainment industry because they would go to the Copacabana, and they would go um, to different clubs. I mean, growing up, if we went to Florida um, for, uh, for Christmas for two weeks, we went uh-huh. to a hotel called The Diplomat, and right. you would have a group <laughs> there called The Fifth Dimension who, wow. who were playing. Yeah, and of so, course. It's just a whole exposure to show business in a way. Um, My mom uh, once had me stay home from school because she saw that Marjorie Morningstar was on TV. Oh, really? And she wanted (laughs) me to see it. She thought it was very important that I see that movie.
2: Wow, that's cool. So it was sort of always, and you know, your brother is uh, Randall Poster, one of the great mm -hmm. music supervisors who uh, done plenty of work, but made his name with uh, Wes Anderson in large part for his films. Mm Mm-hmm. So you well, were both Randy, into it. We
1: would. Yeah, we used to watch the Channel 7 movie, um, the Million Dollar Movie. Uh-huh. I don't know if you know about that.
2: I, I mean, no, not Million Dollar It was Man. in New
1: York. It was in New York. It was the ABC, the Channel 7 movie, and they had a theme each week. Okay. And so like Tony Curtis was a theme. So my brother and I always used to watch that together.
2: Uh, you got your start in the business. I mean, y- you always hear about these classic stories of uh, starting in the mailroom in Hollywood, and that that was your story, right?
1: Yeah, you know, I have to say, in my whole career, the biggest deal, the biggest thing, was that I got the job in the mailroom at William Morris, and I was the second female trainee mm-hmm. to be in the mailroom because they didn't have trainees, they didn't have women in the mailroom before, and um it was really a hard job to get. I, I went to Tulane and I was uh, on this committee and a speaker symposium thing. And there was a dinner at the president of the university's home
3: mm-hmm.
1: and Alexander Haig was being, it was for Alexander Haig who was speaking. And I was sitting next to his aide, a guy named Woody Goldberg. Mm-hmm. And Woody was talking to me. And if you look at my name tag, it doesn't read Jewish Merrill Poster, but I think if you look at me or talk to me, you you quickly realize that I am. (laughs) So he said, um, Meryl, you know, what are you doing after school? And I said, I don't know. I'm a sophomore. And he said, I think you would make a great agent. So I said, okay. So he said, I'm going to put you in touch with a woman at William Morris and uh, see see if you can get a job there this summer. Okay. Thank you. I get in touch with this agent at William Morris. And she says that they only hire the children of agents there for the summer.
3: <laughs> wow.
1: And that, um, you know, there's no openings. Okay. So uh, I had to take, I was doing a course at NYU for some credits. And at the end of the summer, I called personnel just randomly. And I was fortunate to get this woman on the phone named Ruth Ann Sioni. And she had just started there. She was an associate. And I guess they call it human resources, but at the time they called it personnel. Right. And I asked her if I could get an informative interview. Mm-hmm. And she said, yes. So I went in there and I interviewed and talked to her. And she said to stay in touch. And I went, I studied in London that semester, my junior year. And I sent her postcards when I traveled somewhere. Oh, cool. I would just send her
2: postcards. Very
1: smart. And then I came home Christmas break and I saw her. And she said, there's still nothing available to stay in touch. So the next semester I was studying in Florence and I traveled all over and I sent her postcards from everywhere. And I called and there was nothing available. And by time, uh, at some point, my dad stopped sending money to the American Express office and I had to come back. Uh (laughs) And uh, I worked as a receptionist in the garment center that summer. I went back to Tulane in the fall and I was in touch with her. And at that point, I think at the end of the summer, she told me that I needed to know how to type to work in the mailroom. So I didn't know how to type. Christmas break my senior year, I took uh, short method secretarial skills at the Penta Hotel, (laughs) which is across the street from the garden in the basement. Wow! I went there every day and learned how to type. I went back to school for the second semester of my senior year, and kids are starting to interview. At that time, different companies, advertising agencies and whatnot would come and interview students for jobs. And my friends would say, well, aren't you interviewing? And I said, no, I'm going to work at William Morris. I said, uh, I know how to type and I could be a temp. I now know how to type. I can be a temp. I'm not going to take some job I don't want. I want to work. I want to work there. Right. Okay. So now I'm finished with school and I go, I actually now get to meet the head of personnel at William Morris. And he says to me that, um, that I need a connection Mm -hmm. that you really need to know someone to get into the program. So I kept saying to my parents, don't you know someone, you must know someone. And finally they realized that the cantor at my temple was good friends with this guy named Lee Solomon. Mm-hmm. And Lee Solomon was a personal appearance agent. In fact, when Kathy Lee and Regis were on, they used to refer to him and sometimes you'd see him. He's a guy, you know, slick back hair. I think I remember uh, that, yeah. Yeah, uh, a flower in his pocket, uh-huh. very slick. <laughs> and he booked, you know, for Atlantic City and Las Vegas. So, I mean, it's not when everyone says to me, oh, the cantor at your temple, but our temple was very small Mm -hmm. and I had gone to yeshiva, which is a Hebrew day school when I was younger. So I knew Hebrew pretty fluently by time it was my bat mitzvah. Right. And so I was the best student he ever had. I was his prize student. It was like a breeze Uh compared to everyone else. So I knew the cantor pretty well. It wasn't that bizarre. Um, So I met with him for like five minutes, Lee Solomon, and he said, okay. And then I was put through the process. And it was, you meet three different agents and they question you and then you start.
2: So, what is it about the mailroom? I mean, it's such a path to kind of get your foot in the door. Why mailroom? Is it just because it's the sort of entry position or is there something about the job specifically putting you in touch with people at the company constantly?
1: Well, I mean, at the time it was, it was what I should do. You know, I didn't know to be, I didn't know anything else, maybe the, a page program at one of the networks, but. Right. I just knew of that as an entryway and I didn't know what it really entailed. I just knew that that's how you get in. Okay. And so you really do work in the mailroom. I really did work in the mailroom. Um, you read at that time, you could read all the, all the emails, not uh-huh. all the emails, all the memos. And they also would, um, they would have all the meeting minutes. They would transcribe the uh-huh. minutes from all the meetings, the different meetings, whether it be from TV, talent, Music. They all had their meetings, and they were all transcribed. So you could um, read the minutes. You could take ho- you take home them. It's too hard to read all of them there, but you could take home the
2: minutes. So you end up you really in the them. know, basically.
1: right? And that's how you learn. Okay. And then they also would for their, who their clients were. They were in bold in mm-hmm. a memo. Clients were in bold. So that's how you learned who the clients were as well. And then, wow. um, and then you would uh, read scripts. And when you delivered mail, like the, you would try to get the cart to be on the floor of what you wanted to get into. So if you wanted to get into music, you would take that card or books or whatever it was. So I wanted to be in, um, in, uh, casting, I guess. Okay. And so I would take that card and then they'd ask you to read scripts, sometimes the assistants and Mm -hmm. cover it. So, and then sometimes you'd fill in on a desk when somebody was out. And it was really fun. I really enjoyed it. Um, But they didn't have women delivering packages. So that was good also. They didn't put us on the subway to deliver packages. So we stayed in-house. I mean, sometimes you did little um, runs of some sort, but nothing big. And then about six months, no, really about three or four months into working in the mailroom, uh, I get a message that the president of William Morris wants to meet with me. Oh, boy. And I'm like, oh, God, I know I put the mail in and I took the mail out. I'm certain of it. (laughs) And so he um, asked me if I'd like to work for him. That he had a regular secretary mm-hmm. and she came in at like 11 and he got in earlier. So, um, you know, when I come work, you know, and it's not like I can say no.
3: Right. So I was course. like,
1: okay. It wasn't my ideal per se because it wasn't a training desk as he was the president. He didn't have as many clients. It mm-hmm. wasn't like I listened in on these phone calls. So um, in the morning, I would get there. And he would call me from his apartment. He was two blocks away to ask me for breakfast, tell me what he wanted for breakfast. Mm -hmm. And at the time, unfortunately for me, the cook had quit. So (laughs) I had to order it from the deli across the street. Right. And then I would have to call down to the mailroom to pick it up because I couldn't leave my desk. Yeah. So they would bring it to me and then I would transfer it into China. But it was nothing, it was like toast and coffee. It was really not a big deal what he ordered. Uh Uh-huh. how to do? I did that, and then I also read magazines and highlighted all the clients, right. And the newspapers. And someone would come up, and they'd see me reading People magazine. Like, oh my god! I said, no, this is my job. I have to do this. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, um, simultaneously, um, I covered the visiting office that was next door, uh-huh. and that was when uh, mostly board members from LA came into town, and they used that office. So I worked for them. So I got to know people from LA, because and high-ranking people because um, they were working. I was helping them, and also the right. chairman of William Morris was in that suite also. So I got to know him as well.
2: Wow! So you get a job where you're you sort of sort of know all the inside ins and outs, and then you ingratiate yourself to people by working hard and hustling, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that's that's how you do it.
1: Well, then I went to Mr. Stevens and I said to him. Because someone had someone had gotten a really good trainee job. It was actually on Kevin Uvain's desk, mm-hmm. and I didn't have the opportunity. And the girl, the girl who got it is actually one of my best friends now, but I despised her because she came from <laughs> out. She came from not in the program at all. She just came from the outside, and she uh-huh. got to be his assistant. So I said to, I complained to Mister Stevens about it that it wasn't fair. And being at his desk, I'm not having those opportunities. Right. So then he said, "Okay, I hear you," and then ultimately put me with a woman who was head of casting for talent for uh head of casting at the department. It's called talent. it was called talent casting. Then it's called talent now.
2: Now is that, did you get your start before you started producing in casting?
1: Yeah. I mean, I wasn't really casting. You put together lists, uh-huh. but it was being a, it was being an assistant. Right. And the thing about being an assistant at William Mars or at any of the agencies is that you really train you don't get training at production companies right. the same way you do at an agency. You learn, you see the whole big picture when you're at a talent agency. You know who everybody is.
3: Uh-huh.
1: You have everybody's phone number. Those are the days of, you know, there's no computer or cell phone. Right. I still have certain numbers memorized. I really? tell Susan <laughs> Bimel, who's a manager, I said, I can still remember because she represented um, Marissa Tomei, who I worked with a lot, uh-huh. the client. And I still remember her phone number. There's some phone numbers that you just remember. Yeah, yeah,
2: totally.
0: (laughs) Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast, How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call
4: 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Amy Brown from 4 Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen.
5: Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without painful finger sticks. So you can always know which way your glucose is headed. An arrow shows you where you're heading, up, down, or steady. It can also alert you before you go too low or when you're going too high. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM available, you can make better diabetes decisions about food, medication, and activity in the moment. And all those little decisions Decisions can lead to big results. Results you can see like more time and range in lower A1C. With Dexcom G7, you can manage your diabetes with confidence. Get started with the number one recommended CGM brand by doctors and patients at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com.
2: Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com compatibility. Now we've talked a lot about, uh, on the show about, and you know, my limited work in the film industry over the years, I used to PA and do art department stuff and then stuff you should know had a one season TV show. And I've tried to explain to people, I think there's a lot of confusion to general listeners and movie fans about what producer means, because there's mm-hmm. so many kinds of producers. Uh, my wife was a producer for a while. Kind of, can you break down sort of a bird's eye view of some of the different kinds of producers and then ultimately what you did as a producer?
1: Okay. Well, um, there really are all different kinds of producers. When people want you to define what does a producer do, there are all different kinds of producers.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think the number one thing about a producer is problem solving. That right. that's really a key, uh, a key characteristic is problem solving. And, um, I was an executive but the way that my company operated was that we were very producerial, so we weren't like like they would call they, they would call someone a suit as an executive mm-hmm. we were in suits. we were in the um we were in with them we were in the trenches with the filmmakers, right, and often guiding it much more so than a producer okay uh we would take a lot of responsibility so uh for i I think the best way i can I can give you examples of movies and what the producer did on this one or that one. Sure. Um, well, should we talk about the movie that we're going to talk about and how I could say that producer? Or do you want to wait?
2: Let's wait on that one. But okay. can, can we go through some of your other movies? Because sure. you've, you've worked on some of the greatest movies that have ever been made and some of my favorite movies. Uh, and I did want to talk about Copland. Uh-huh. Uh, I think that was James Mangold's first film, right? No,
1: Kate Leopold was his mo- No, Heavy was his first movie, actually. Oh,
2: that's right. That's right. Okay, with... No, Pruitsche. then he
1: did, yeah, then he did Copland, then he did Cate Leopold, right? Well,
2: yeah, I think so. so for, uh-huh. for Copland, like, what did you do on that movie compared to other films?
1: Well, on that movie, I had worked with the producers, Carrie Woods and Kathy Conrad. I'd done a bunch of movies with them before. So I was really sort of part of their team. Okay. And he had wanted, I remember that, it's the things that you remember. Is so Jim had wanted Nick Cage for the part.
2: Okay, for the Stallone part? Yeah. Okay.
1: That's who he wanted. He wanted Nick Cage. And I don't remember what happened. All I remember is that I'd been in London
2: mm-hmm.
1: on a movie and I came back to the office at Tribeca Film Center and I walked into a press, a press, um, what is it, a, pre- a press? Uh, Junket? No. Press conference? A press conference. Uh-huh. And it's, they're sitting, it's being announced that Sylvester Stallone is playing the part. I didn't even know that was happening. Wow. And I'm not sure. I mean, ultimately Jim was very happy about it, mm-hmm. but at the time I don't know how thrilled he was about it.
2: Yeah. It ended up being a great part for still mm-hmm. and he earned, you know, a lot of accolades. I think, I think he was pretty great in it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I will say one of the worst part, one of the worst things about being in the movie business, at least for me was research screenings. And we, I remember the first research screening we had, a research screening, I don't know if your audience knows, is when you recruit people to see a movie, Mm -hmm. when the movie's over, and you don't do, and when the movie's over, you pass out a questionnaire, people fill out a questionnaire, and then you select about 20 people to be the focus group, and someone leads the focus group, and uh, talk about how they feel about the movie, what they should do. I mean, in New York City, it's like they're all they all go to film school, it feels like, what right. they're telling us.
3: <laughs>
2: right.
1: And it is the worst, worst part. It was the worst part by far, I think, of what I did because like Sly was there for our first um, research screening and he was in, um, he was in, uh, I'm like losing all my, my mind. He was in wearing something, incognito.
3: Oh, okay. He was like incognito. Yeah, yeah.
1: So they start the, re- the focus group and the focus group is just tearing him apart. I thought I would die it was talking about how bad he is oh, and no. it's ridiculous and just going on and on. It's just so embarrassing.
2: Oh my God.
1: Sitting and listening to that and that, and I've been down that road. I've been, like I say, if I ever wrote a book, someone said it should be, I've been in the parking lot with all of them. Right. <laughs> because you go into the parking lot while they're taking, doing the questionnaire, you go yeah. into the parking lot. Uh huh. You know, so they don't see the person and then they sneak in when they do the, um, when they do the uh, focus group. Right. So I've been in the parking lot with George Clooney, Sidney Powell. I've been in the parking lot with everyone. Wow. And it's, and it's very tense because uh-huh. they're worried about how it's going to be. And
2: yeah, it's very, very tense. So much power is put into that. And so much goes into, uh, it, it's amazing. Like they spend so much money on these movies and then there's a a room full of just moviegoers kind of deciding the fate on some very important calls.
1: I, I, what I'll tell you what we, I found is that if a movie doesn't score well, mm-hmm. anything you do doesn't really bring up the score very much. But if a movie scores well, like Chicago scored really well. Of course. Right. Now, we could have made it score, it scored, say, 95 Mm-hmm. and to, and there were a couple of things that we could do to take it to a hundred, and we did we changed, she re uh renee re-recorded the last song, okay um with more heart, and there were a couple of little things we filled in, but it was basically it was basically that song and then just a couple of little things, yeah, and it was we didn't need to do it uh-huh, but it brought the movie over the top and that's where I found it was only worth it if you have you know like you have an a of an elephant. What do you say? Like a pig. Um, you can't put lipstick on a pig, right. you know? And <laughs> yeah, <or> an elephant. <laughs> I went through this so many times, so many times. It was just so aggravating. And it was really only the movies that worked Yeah. that that really made sense to, to put more money into it.
2: Well, I mean, you've got a great list of credits, but what do you, I mean, surely you've been in this situation before where everyone knows that the movie's not good, despite Uh best efforts. Like, what do you do in that situation? Cry. Really?
1: (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. It's got to be so deflating. It is so deflating. And you just, and you, and it's like beating you up. I mean, week after, you know, you're doing all these screenings and Mm -hmm. speaking to these filmmakers, and it's just, it's so demeaning and demoralizing. It really is. It's horrible.
2: Let's talk more about Chicago because that's a fantastic movie. It's one of my favorite movies. and. One of the movies that got me into musicals more than I ever had been. Mm-hmm. Um, what else can you, you know, we all we all want to hear insider stories.
1: Oh my god, there's a million of them with that one. <laughs>
2: Just give me one or two.
1: Um
2: I mean, was it all I'm sure it was a tough shoot when you're talking
1: It wasn't the shoot, it was putting it together. You know, it had been put together before. Oh, really? And and it and actually I was on maternity leave, thankfully, when it fell apart. Um, but initially it was it was owned by this producer named Marty Richards, mm-hmm. and Marty Richards was a very flamboyant theater producer who was married to Mary Lee Johnson of Johnson and Johnson. Okay, so he, she had she had been dead when uh, we started the process, and he just threw money. He threw money at a lot of things. He had yeah. a beautiful ha- apartment at the River River um, Terrace. Mm-hmm. That was called the the River Terrace, I think, and he had the rights. And he was pissed off because um, the theater rights he did not have. So that kind of bugged him because it was doing really well. It, it ended up, you know, blowing up on Broadway and was yeah. playing, and he didn't get anything from that. The Weislers, Barry Weisler, actually. One thing that was funny was that Barry Weisler came to us that he wanted to direct it.
3: To direct a the with film. Him.
1: Yeah, it, Marty wasn't there, and I'm sitting there the whole time. Well, he's talking about it. And I thought, I mean, I'm not telling this to Marty. He'll go crazy. He'll go nuts. And the guy went nuts usually as it was. This was just like, I'm laughing inside. Like, there's no way this is happening. But when we, uh, I saw it, I initially saw it when it was um, done at City Center. And they had just read it. You know, they used to do plays. And I had no idea what it was really about or what to do with it. And I was tasked with making a movie out of it. And I really had no idea what to do. And I would read the play over and over again Mm -hmm. and then read some background on it to get an idea of it. So what its statement was about, about fame. So I learned, I I really literally led the play every week to, to see more and more of what was in it. Right. And, um, met with a lot of directors and writers. It was a very, very one time at one point at the beginning, uh, Madonna and Goldie Hawn were attached.
2: I think I knew Madonna was at one uh-huh. point. Yeah. Which makes sense.
1: And at that time, at one point, Stanley Donnan, the legendary director, Stanley Donnan did Singing in the Rain, directed Singing in the Rain. Oh, wow. And Charade. He was up for directing it. And we had had some meetings with him. And then I had to fly out to, um, to LA over Fourth of July weekend with him to meet with Madonna. And my grandmother was still alive. You talk about my grandmother told me all about movies. Uh We talked about movies all the time. And I called her and I said,
2: that's so cool. I'm
1: taking Stanley Donnan out to, uh, to LA to meet with Madonna for Chicago. And (laughs) then I said something, Stanley. And she goes, she said, that's disgusting. He's a star. He has to fly to her. And I said, <laughs> I know, I know, it's just the way it is. And when I said something, Stanley, I said, and he makes me call him Stanley. He won't let me call him Mr. Donovan.
2: Wow, that's funny. Mm-hmm.
1: That didn't work out. Um, there was one point, oh my God, there's so many incarnations of this. So we had done a movie called She's All That. Yeah, of course. And it was immensely successful for the mm-hmm. company. And Rob Iskove had directed it. So there was a thought that, you know, he should be doing, he wanted to kind of do Chicago. He made the company a lot of money. um, So he was given the job to direct it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't universally uh, agreed to unanimously. It wasn't met with great uh, enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. And then not through him, but we then hire Larry Gelbart to write it. Or I think Larry was hired before. I can't remember. But Larry decided that, um, and you know, Larry Gelbart, you know, he did, he wrote MASH, he wrote, yeah. uh, he wrote, um, my
2: favorite show as a kid, Tootsie, uh-huh.
1: he, you know, he's done a lot. And anyway, so Larry, uh, decided that he's not going to talk to Rob Isco. He's decided he's not talking to Rob Isco. <laughs> he then decides he's not talking to Marty Richards, the producer. Nor is he talking to the head of my company. He's only going to talk to me. He decided. Wow. He's like, I'm only talking to you. And I said, Larry, I'm very flattered, but really like, this is not good for me. This is uh, not helping me. Right. <laughs> and I was like, really, I like, we can hang out, but this is not really helping me at all. Mm-hmm. That part, that whole grouping uh, disintegrated. And, um, and then Nick Heitner was going to direct it.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And, This, and then he was going to have Charlize in it. And I don't remember the other, I think Charlize was going to play Roxy Mm -hmm. and Marty Richards had a relationship with Catherine Zeta Jones and she was going to play Velma. Right. I was on maternity leave and I really took my maternity leave because I was setting a precedent for everybody following me that I really did not. I did the things I had to do, but I really took my maternity leave. And uh, the whole thing blew up. I was not a part of it. Thankfully. Uh huh. And so when I came back from maternity leave, we were on square one. Wow. And I met with so many people. I met with David Fincher. I met with Robbie Bates. I met with Curtis Hansen. I mean, Mm -hmm. just so many, so many people. And no one had a take that spoke to me at all. I didn't, it just didn't feel it.
2: Right. Is it a gut thing that you're looking for? Mm -hmm. Okay.
1: I mean, for me, it's a gut thing, but Uh when I hear it, you you know, I just, it just didn't sound, it just didn't feel right. Right. And I was passing on all these pretty big people and Robbie Bates was, he still brings it up. I think that he's like, wow, you were brutal. When he gave me his take, I was like, that's terrible. (laughs) And, uh, anyway, he acknowledged to me later on that the movie was great and he understands why. Right. So, um, I got a call from an agent at ICM. And he said to me, we, and at that time we had the rights to rent, although we did not make, I have nothing to do with the movie Rent. It ended up being sold. I had nothing to do with it, but we had bought it. I had bought it, but mm-hmm. didn't make it. And so he said to me, um, would you meet with Rob Marshall? He just directed Cinderella on television. Okay. And, uh, and I, no, Annie, Annie, I'm sorry, Rob Isco did Cinderella. He, he said he just did Annie for television. And I said, oh, I saw that. Um, it was pretty good. He goes, would you meet with him for rent? So I said, sure. So Rob wasn't big enough to come in for Chicago.
2: Yeah. You know, he was, he was a, a young director, right? Yeah. Previously. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
1: And Chicago was going to be a big event movie. Whereas sure. I think that rent, we could take more of a, um, more of a, uh, shot, right. A swing. Uh, you know, we could take a swing on that. So Rob comes in and he says to me, uh, do you mind if I give you my take for Chicago? And I said, sure. And he proceeds to tell me exactly how the movie opened.
3: Wow. Which is how
1: the movie opened. Uh huh. And he said, you go, you go through her eye, you go through Renee, not Renee. He said, you go through her eye and you see her on stage. Mm-hmm. I mean, he set the whole thing up and he took me through the whole thing. And I said, that's it.
2: Wow. That's that it. That is so cool.
1: And so when you hear it, you know it.
2: Yeah, I guess- And Rob
1: was so dynamic that I knew he could draw talent. Yeah. Like he's very charming. Uh Like I knew that wouldn't be a problem. And also with us supporting it, you know, we could get the talent.
2: Right. And you weren't worried about just the lack of experience as a, as a film director either.
1: I don't know. I wasn't, you know, I thought Mm -hmm. that his take was so amazing. Yeah. Um, and he had the right sensibility. And, um, and then we interviewed different writers. I think it was four writers in Marty's house. I remember where a lot of action took place. Mm-hmm. And um, and it turned out like Bill Bill Condon got the gig. Yeah. And it went. The script came in pretty great.
2: Yeah, I mean that that's a movie. I will anytime I see it's playing. I will I will turn it to that channel and watch. Well, it. I'll tell
1: you what happened with Renee. So. Do you want to? Uh, so yes. um,
2: <laughs> For sure. So
1: I had done. I had done a movie called uh, "Price Above Rubies" with Renee, mm-hmm. and I became friendly with her on that movie. And um, and the first person we went to, uh, Reese Witherspoon. Mm-hmm. We went to, and she said she couldn't sing. So now, um, obviously with Coal Miner's Daughter, we found out that she can.
2: Right. Uh, or uh, Walk the Line. Yeah.
1: Yeah. What did I say?
2: Coal miner's daughter.
1: Oh, same. I- same idea. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Mark the line, which Jim Mangold directed, right? And um, and then the other person, they had to have like a real innocence to them. Mm-hmm. And the other, we couldn't go to Kate Hudson because of the history with Goldie Hawn, and I don't know. I don't know what ha- I don't know. I don't know if we went to. I don't know what if we went to Gwyneth or or not, but there weren't really any choices. Mm -hmm. And we had Catherine Zeta Jones attached. And I said, you know, I can, I I can, there are plenty of people who can play the part of Velma. Mm -hmm. I can, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer. There's a lot of people who can play that part, but, but this part, she had to be innocent. There was a lot to it. They had to be an innocence to it. Right. And I felt that Renee would be perfect for the part. So I called her agent and she calls me back and she said, Renee, uh, said she can't sing and dance. And I said, you know. Um,
2: I'll be the judge of that.
1: <laughs> no, I'll tell you something. This sounds, this sounds so pretentious, but we had made the movie Talented Mr. Ripley. Mm-hmm. And when Anthony Minghella cast Jude Law and cast Matt, I said to him, how do you know they can sing? And he said, if you, if you act well enough, you can act singing well enough.
2: Oh, and interesting. And that
1: stood in my mind. That stayed yeah. in my mind. Uh-huh. And so she came back and she said, no. And this agent owed me a favor. And I said, I'm calling in my favor. I said, um, Renee has to come in and meet with Rob and just meet with him. That's the favor. Just meet with him. Yeah. And so she did. And he worked with her dancing. Mm-hmm. And then I'll ne- we went to dinner at a place called West, which is right near where I live now. And somehow Rob got her to sing Somewhere Over the Rainbow.
2: Oh, Wow. And that was it, huh?
1: And that was it. And we negotiated at the time there was so much business with her for oh, and also we had done Bridget Jones Diary with her. Uh-huh. That um Bridget Jones Diary to Cold Mountain and Chicago. It was a combined negotiation. Right. And I literally was bereft. I was so I was like, I need her for the movie. Uh-huh. I need her for the movie. I can do without. I can do it with the other parts, but I need her to play that part.
2: Yeah, I mean, and different. that's
1: why she thanks me for the Cold Mountain. I didn't have anything to do with her being cast in Cold Mountain, but when she won the Oscar for Cold Mountain, oh. she gave me a lot of props because of the because of the uh, Chicago thing.
2: You've been thanked on that Oscar stage quite a bit over the years. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> well, there are different levels of can't sing. You know, there are people who genuinely can't sing, and are I cannot sort of sing, tone deaf, and then. If you get someone that can carry a tune, but maybe don't feel strong, uh, you can coach them up and get vocal coaches and sweeten it a bit and you can work with that, you know?
1: Yeah. It worked out great.
2: Oh, she was fantastic.
1: She was absolutely fantastic. She was absolutely, I really, she, she was absolutely fantastic.
2: Yeah. And Catherine Zeta-Jones was someone I think I was sort of medium cool on until, I mean, I liked her fine, but after Chicago. I was just blown away. I was like, "Man, she has got the goods." I did not know that she could do that stuff. I didn't know she could dance and sing and uh, and, and Richard Gere and John C. Riley. I mean, it was just well, it was Richard a Gere was of my riches. idea. Oh, really?
1: Yeah, because I remember seeing um, in the credits of of uh, Pretty Woman that he had composed that piano tinkling that he had done. Oh, I so didn't it know made that. me think that he was um, musical.
2: Okay. And then the funny thing is,
1: so then we did Chicago and he he learned how to dance and did all the dancing. And he was really great to work with. And that's the most acclaim he's ever gotten, critical acclaim he's ever gotten for a part. And then we had the movie I was working on, the remake of Shall We Dance. Uh And I went to him first. And of course, at first he passes, which they all do. And I said, listen, Richard, I spent a lot of money on dance lessons for you. You Uh you owe me this. (laughs) And his agent who was, The biggest agent in Hollywood, Ed Lamato, at the time, Mm -hmm. I was so scared of him before because when I was an assistant at William Morris, he was scary and he had yelled at my friend. I never spoke to him. And every time, you know, there was a call that I was delegated. I was like, I can't call back Ed Lamato. I can't go back Ed Lamato. And the funny thing is that when we hired Richard, he would call me Mm -hmm. and thank me. It was just so crazy. I couldn't believe Ed Lamato. And I used to call my friend who I sat next to as an assistant at Roy and I'd say, can you believe Ed Lamato called me? Uh-huh. I mean, I would say, can you believe Ed Lamado?" And then when I spoke to him about Shall We Dance, he said, you make Richard do it. We'll make Richard do it. I mean, it was just mind blown.
2: That's amazing. It's so cool to hear these stories because I think, uh, I know people know it's tough to make movies, but I don't think anyone understands how tenuous it can be before those cameras start rolling on day oh. one. Yeah. And how it can just go away and fall apart. And mm-hmm. uh, really good projects with great people attached.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, I gave an interview and I was say when I got into television and when I had a TV show that was ordered, we had um, Project Runway All-Stars. Mm-hmm. It was a new version of Project Runway. I was in charge of it. And we were, uh, Vera Wang pulled out a week before
2: shooting. Oh my gosh.
1: And. Someone's like, people, aren't you nervous? Like, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. Someone's going to be in that chair. Right. (laughs) I said, it's not going to fall apart. Someone is going to be in that chair. Yeah. And it's easier with that feeling. Right. Like, well, find the person. It's going to be someone.
2: Uh huh. (laughs) Well, that's what producers do. My wife, we, it's so funny. You can't stop producing. And she hasn't done that. She runs her own business now, but she hasn't produced in 15 plus years. And she still produces everything and we always laugh. I'm like, you'll always be the producer, no matter what. Yeah. The problem solver. And, you know, it's great. She's and I think many uh many women who work in as producers are scrappy and smart and get the job done and are just not to be fucked with. Mm-hmm. And that's who I married.
1: (laughs) Well, Kathy Conrad was one of those producers for sure. And I learned a lot from her. Yeah, because she came out of physical production. She knew a lot about physical production.
2: Right. Now, what do you mean by that, by physical production? She,
1: uh, the things that a line producer knows. Right. Um, Camera also about DP, the camera, the days out of date, all the, a lot of that stuff.
2: All the money. She had known about that. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And I learned a lot from her.
0: Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
4: This is Amy Brown from 4 Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen.
5: Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without painful finger sticks. So you can always know which way your glucose is headed. An arrow shows you where you're heading, up, down, or steady. It can also alert you before you go too low or when you're going too high. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM available, you can make better diabetes decisions about food, medication, and activity in the moment. And all those little decisions decisions can lead to big results. Results you can see like more time in range in lower A1c. With Dexcom G7, you can manage your diabetes with confidence. Get started with the number one recommended CGM brand by doctors and patients at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com.
2: Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com compatibility well before we talk about beautiful girls sum, i do want to talk about your podcast project um which is really really wonderful uh i heard you just got picked up for a season two it's called call yeah. your grandmother mm-hmm. and tell us about this idea and how it's been working on it and why podcast
1: well first of all I can't believe what a success it's become. Yeah. It happens to be a huge success. We've been on the Apple homepage for two weeks. That's great. Um, so I'm really excited about, it. I, I, I can't believe it. And as a lot of projects I do, this came from my own personal life. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom is a big character and someone had said to me, my, my niece and my, and my uh, daughter, had put together an Instagram account called Illy Grammy Gram, Uh which means I love you Grammy. They call her Grammy Uh gram.
2: That's so sweet. And
1: they put all the things of my mother singing and dancing on the podcast, on the uh, Instagram. Mm -hmm. And someone had said to me, you know, your mother should really have a show. Mm -hmm. And I thought, all right, well, I'm not giving my mother a show. I'm not going to do that. (laughs) But I started thinking about podcasts because podcasts were starting to take off. And I started to think about the popularity of Golden Girls
3: mm-hmm.
1: and the uh, Barbara Streisand kind of character, the Barbara Streisand kind of grandmother, Jewish grandmother thing that people found that they love and there's an attraction to it. So I thought about all that. And I mean, I was really just scrappy about it. My niece was home, she had taken a, uh, she deferred a year from college. I made her do a deck for me. Uh huh put together a deck for me. I had an old intern help her do it. And I gave a lot of revisions. She saw me in a totally different light, my niece from that instead <laughs> sure. of being Aunt Merrill.
2: Yeah, producer role.
1: Yeah. And deadline, whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so I called, um, I called the head of Sirius, who I'd worked with before. Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't want to meet with you. I said, I want to meet with your podcast person. And he said, okay. And he set me up. And I said to the guy, let me hear, you know, I want to know everything about podcasts. I want to learn about how to, and I asked a lot of questions and mm-hmm. he gave me some background. So I said, okay, I said, I have a, I have a podcast for you. I said, I'm not going to show you my paper. I'm not going to show you. I just want you to listen to me. Mm-hmm. So I tell him about, I give him a whole spiel about grandmothers and golden girls. And and I said, there's something to, to be had for easy listening
3: mm-hmm.
1: and not being, So caught up into a thriller, or being having to dedicate hours and hours. Right. That you know, if you're driving, it's a fun bite. Right. And when after I told the whole thing, he said, "And I was calling it Ellie Grammy Graham at the time," and he said, "You know, I thought I heard every idea, but that is a great (laughs) idea. I've never heard it." Cool. And I said, "Okay, you know, let me come back to you." Mm -hmm. So then I was having breakfast with my very good friend who's the head of Spotify, Don Ostrom. And I I don't think of her in terms of being the head of Spotify, I really think of her as my friend. But Mm -hmm. at the end, I realized, and I said to her, oh, by the way, I have a podcast and I don't think you're gonna like it. I don't think it's gonna appeal to you, but if I sell it, I don't want you to think I didn't bring it to you. Right. No, I said, I think I'm gonna sell it and I don't want you to. So she said, well, tell me what it is. So I told her, she goes, I love it. She said, can you bring it to my people and pitch it? And I said, sure. (laughs) So um, I did that and they really liked it. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'll come back to you. I wasn't committing to anyone. And then I was having dinner with my friend, Mindy Grossman, uh, who's the head of Weight Watchers now. And I was telling her this and she said, I just met the most fabulous woman at iHeart. She's the head of marketing. She's incredible. I want you to talk to her. And I said, okay. So she said, will you meet with someone in my New York office? And I said, sure. Mm -hmm. And I met I met with Mangesh and literally five minutes into the meeting, I said, I'm doing this with you.
2: That's great.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I thought he was amazing.
2: Yeah. Mangesh is great. Uh, you know, one of my work buddies and we were talking kind of offline before one of the nicest guys you're ever going to meet. He but, is like, don't be fooled. Like, right. He is, I agree with that. He is super smart and not saying you can't be nice and smart, but he he will lull you into his charms with just what a kind hearted soul he is. But uh, he's really got his shit together, and is super smart and awesome.
1: Well, they actually bought two podcasts for me. I have to get working on my other podcast.
2: Can you talk about that yet or no?
1: Yeah, it's called How to Produce a Divorce.
2: Oh, I have
1: created the show Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce. There's no book called Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce. I made that title up, Uh and um, and so it's not really talking about divorce. It's talking about putting together movies Mm -hmm. and talking about. I didn't know how to get divorced, so I thought about getting divorced like making a movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, when you hire a lawyer, it's like hiring a director, um, and so like that. So I can talk about the movies that I've done and how right it relates to that.
2: Very interesting. But well, I have to,
1: I have to, I have to get onto that.
2: Uh, call your grandmother is great. I understand that you've been renewed now for season two, which is super exciting.
1: It is exciting. And we get to go right away because my stars are 90 and 81. So
2: get going, huh?
1: (laughs) Yeah, we don't have any time to waste, although they're going to be around a very long time. I guarantee you that they're incredible. Well, I always say I say that they're my best talent
2: that Uh I've ever worked with. (laughs) Because you know
1: what? They're always available and they always say yes. They never say no.
2: Oh, I love it. And I bet they're excited. And it's just what a kick for them.
1: Yeah, they are. They said that during this time they were so isolated Mm -hmm. that they couldn't see their family and that this has been the greatest experience. They're so thankful. They're incredibly respectful to the team at iHeart. Mm-hmm. Really sweet. And uh, That's awesome. They're always on. They're really, it's, it's incredible. They have the most dynamic personalities.
2: That is so cool. My wife's, uh, uh, my grandmother-in-law is 100. Oh, my God. This year had her 100th birthday. And can't hear great, but as sharp as a tack still, mm-hmm. uh, which is really cool. So she's, well, she's have you, still have Well, is going. your wife close to her? Oh yeah, really close.
1: Have her listen to the last episode of Call Your Grandmother. It's it's so tough. It's so great. And it's not the one with my mother. It's okay. <laughs> I, it's really great. How many episodes are in the season? Six. And then we're gonna we're, we're putting together a bonus episode.
2: Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean it's I think it's a show that listeners to this show will really love.
1: It's it's so easy to listen to. Yeah. It's so relatable. You learn about lives you know, one of the questions I had asked is, where were you when Franklin Roosevelt died? Not John Kennedy, Franklin Roosevelt. Right. (laughs) And it was so interesting. You know, one, one grandmother had said that she didn't understand because her whole life he'd been president Mm -hmm. and no one knew of a different, another president because he'd been in term almost for, it was going on his fourth. um,
2: Yeah. Yeah. Before term limits.
1: Yeah. His fourth term. So um, there's that. I think that their, their joie de vie, their joy of life is Uh very apparent. Um, I think that they feel badly about kids today, teenagers today Mm -hmm. that, and and there's one line that, um, a grandmother had said that for women, Uh that it was much easier because they knew what their role was. It was very well defined.
2: Right. Interesting. Yeah. That's Um, really interesting to consider.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great history lesson. And that's part of what I wanted to, I wanted to um, bring forth because I know in my family that you learned about um, historical based on your ancestors. Mm-hmm. It's, it was very tied in. And, you know, it's, it's, it was so universal and I knew this was going to be the case that I, had, I asked them, had asked them uh, had, the question was posed, how did you feel about your grandmother?
3: Oh, and wow. every
1: single one of them said, "Oh, my grandmother was an old lady."
2: Uh-huh. And they
1: said, "And I'm telling, you, she must be 60 What I'm talking about, but she was an old in her fifties, even. Yeah, she was such an old lady.
2: Uh huh. Yeah, it's that you perspective, mm-hmm. and, and I think a lot of people have. Uh, you know, I lost my grandparents largely when I was in elementary and high school, so I wasn't. You know, I was close to them, but I just I so wish I could speak to them as an adult now, right? With that perspective, and uh, and I think your show is. little bit of a conduit to that for people that didn't get to do that
1: yeah people have been it it brings them closer you know when someone's left you the more when you talk about them it makes you feel close to them Mm -hmm. or when something is brought up it's it's not you know some people are under the myth they think that oh if you bring up someone who's died it's sad for them but it's not real they like talking i mean i know how i feel that you want to talk about the person
2: yeah absolutely um all right so we can move on to beautiful girls what we usually do on the show is sort of deep dive on someone's favorite all-time movie but since we were having you in you had the great idea of talking about kind of your favorite movie that you actually worked on
1: but it's my favorite movie altogether also of course oh
2: is it okay yeah, well i watched it again this sure. morning and um what about this movie made it your favorite work experience
1: well it it was my favorite work experience because we were all about the same age. Okay. Ted Demi was the director. Uh-huh. Ted was the funnest, funnest guy ever. Yeah. Matt Dillon was my heartthrob from uh, high
2: school. Of course, all of ours.
1: <laughs> right. So, and Lauren Holly was my age. And Tim Hutton was really fun. He was really, he really, uh, he's a real character, Tim. And... um I mean, all the cast were just all around the same age. I mean, the cast is ridiculous.
2: Uma Thurman and Michael Rappaport and Mira Sorvino, Rosie O'Donnell, Annabeth Gish, Martha Plimpton, Noah Emmerich is so underrated. Well, Uh, Noah, this was Noah's first movie. Oh, was it really?
1: Yeah. It was supposed to be Oliver Platt and then he couldn't do it. And then we cast a no-namer named Noah Emmerich.
2: He's such a good actor. I don't think he gets enough credit. He's a nice guy, Tim. But I mean, right down the line, even like Pruitt Taylor, Vince and Matt's Perlick in these little parts, like everyone was a person that, you know, and like a recognizable face. And I'd love to talk a little bit about just the casting process. Yeah. Sam Robards. What was casting like for that movie?
1: I, I felt like I did the casting hand in hand with, um, Carrie Woods was the producer Mm -hmm. and Kathy Conrad was the producer and Ted and myself and, it, that's how it really kind of happened. Marjorie Simpkin, I can't believe I remember, Marjorie Simpkin was the casting director. And I think she, well, she must've brought forward Noah. Um, okay. and I remember making the deal for, for all those actors. It was with a guy who was a lawyer at the time named Billy Rose. Mm-hmm. He was the production lawyer. He, he then became an agent at UTA and now he's like a real estate mobile, I think. And he and I would make those deals together. And I remember it was Schedule F, it was called, mm-hmm. which was fifty five thousand dollars that they all got Schedule F.
2: Oh yeah, I know about the and Schedule F.
1: <laughs> I, 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 I so clearly remember that. I got them all blankets, um, heavy blankets with uh, beautiful girls embroidered on it, mm-hmm. which they loved. And um, we were holed up at the Hyatt Hotel in Minneapolis, okay, and we would have that, dinner together. You shot it, yeah.
2: My daughter's popping in here. Sorry. That's
1: okay. And, um, and we would all have dinner together. It was very, very cold. There was um, one instance when we were shooting the scene on the ice skating rink with Natalie uh-huh. and it was so cold out. It was freezing. And I was standing next to a heater, a portable heater. Mm-hmm. And my, um, my jacket went up in flames, like, like uh, feathers oh, no coming way. out everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> And I was so mortified, you know, as the studio exec, um, having my jacket, you know, being on a set, like a, like the city girl comes to the country or comes right. to a set.
2: Yeah. And you know, the other thing that happens too, on a movie like this is, uh, one of the most fun things that can happen when you're working on a, even a TV commercial is when you go to sort of a smaller town and you state and man it and you just sort mm-hmm. of t- take it over, Mm-hmm. And uh, descend upon this this town. Um, that's a lot of fun uh, mm-hmm. going on location like that. I imagine.
1: Yeah, I mean, we. I I went to the Mall of America with Tim once. I remember
2: uh-huh. the largest. It was the largest <laughs> mall in the country. Sure.
1: Um, but we really didn't leave the hotel that much because it was really cold.
2: Yeah. <laughs> hey, kiddo. <laughs> I told you you couldn't interrupt this one. Okay. Sorry. Can you go upstairs? Give me a kiss. Go upstairs, all right, or stay down here and just be quiet. Sorry about that. I got one of those. Okay,
1: <laughs> two of them actually.
2: Oh, you got two, um, two girls, but
1: they're older. No, I have a girl and a boy. Oh, okay. Um, well, actually, I always think about. uh I know I can figure out what a movie was by where what happened with my kids. I mean, and my oh, life, yeah, I got sure. I met my husband at the ex husband during Copland. I got engaged during Price Above Rubies. I got, uh-huh. um, <laughs> I was pregnant with my daughter during cider house rules, which was really freaky. Right. And oh, I was, pre- and I was, yeah, <laughs> they thought that I was in this. And when I was on location, they thought I was in it and I gave birth to my son while we were making Chicago.
2: Wow. So it's sort of, it serves as a timeline for your life. Yeah. It's on. totally my timeline. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I also want to talk about with beautiful girls was just, Executive in charge of production is what your title is listed as. And right. what does that mean? You're just there kind of at all times overseeing everything?
1: You know, a lot of the titles are kind of were kind of made up, whatever you wanted them to be. Um I Carrie Carrie Woods was the producer. Um and Carrie produced kids. He produced Rudy. He produced So I Married an Axe Murderer before. And Carrie, I knew when I was an assistant at William Morris, he was a visiting agent. Remember I said I worked for visiting agents. Right. He was a visiting agent that I worked for. And so I knew him from that. And I just didn't, I didn't, I learned a lot about being a production executive from him. And, um, and so I guess, I don't know how my title came up for that. Cause that's the only, I don't, I think I have that credit on some other movies, but in the end, end credits, but not the way it is on this movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Um,
2: but you're in the weeds, basically.
1: I was definitely in the weeds on this one. Definitely. Very much so. Scott Rosenberg, the writer, we, uh, we did things to do in Denver when you're dead. Uh-huh. Um, and Scott has a big personality and he was on set every day. I mean, th- it's just personalities that are very warm and inviting. And Joel Stillerman was Ted's producing partner, who's a great guy. And he was a producer on the, on the movie. Um, Ted was friends with, um, Greg, uh, the singer, uh, Greg Dully. Yeah. Yeah. He died. Af- oh, did he? Greg Dully. I might be, I might be wrong, but I think so.
2: Afghan wigs. Like yeah, they, Afghan they were the Whigs. house band or the bar right. band in this movie. Right. Yeah. I thought I recognized him. Hmm. Um, Matt Dillon. He's alive, by the way. I just had to look real
1: quick. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> it's like a um, pagoda. Yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, so Matt Dillon is sort of an enigmatic, enigmatic guy and that he's always somehow maintained this private life that is sort of unmatched in Hollywood. Uh, I don't want you to betray anything, but what's he, what's he kind of like as a dude?
1: I mean, I really like, I, I, I think that I'm always going to have sort of that crush from afar thing with Matt. Uh-huh. And actually when we were on set, I mean, we we're all young, I was single and Ted goaded me to go into um, Matt's trailer. He's like, you know, you want to, you know, you want to make out with, him. you know, you want to, and he just goaded me that I, I I don't, I went, I started, I went into his trailer and Matt started walking towards me. I was like, I can't do this. I'm too professional. Oh And he still kind of teases me till this day about that. Oh, really? Yeah.
2: Oh, you should have made out with Matt Dillon.
1: I know. I know. But I was, you know, I was young at the time. I wanted to be, I, I was so professional. I wouldn't do that.
2: Yeah. No, of course. I think that was probably the right call.
1: He even wrote something on the poster, the one sheet to me about free the beast. And he <laughs> any, and the funny thing was I was on the street a couple of years ago with my daughter and we ran into Matt and she had just seen the outsiders. Yeah. And she was like, oh my God, she couldn't believe when he said hello and this and that. Um, so, you know, I, my favorite moment in that movie is when he and Uma, See, she's in the car and Uma's walking by.
2: Yeah, walking home at night. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: And she says, you know, I'm easy. It only takes three words. And she says, good night, sweet girl.
2: Mm
3: -hmm.
1: And she walks away and Matt looks in the mirror with that face. And he says, good night, sweet girl. And (laughs) I mean, every time that just completely melts me. Yeah,
2: that's a good scene. And, you know, it's a movie that I love the sort of... uh, I love movies where the, the, you can't go home again kind of uh, mm-hmm. plot line and, and the, the people in a small place that are kind of stuck and the one person that manages to get out right. and they come back and how easily um, they fall right back into that place. You know, as soon as uh-huh. Willie comes home, he's, he's right back in there. He's not the city guy anymore. He's getting drunk with his friends every night at the same bars. And uh, I really just love that kind of movie for some reason.
1: Well, it's sort of a precursor to entourage also. I think that there's some qualities. Yeah. Some some qualities in there. But um it's I, I think, you know, he never really says it, Scott, but it is somewhat semi autobiographical.
2: Oh uh, really? Scott.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh Rosie O'Donnell has that great scene too. And yeah. It made me sort of miss her as an actor. And I, I think she she could have been so huge. And she you know, she had a good career as an actor, but I think when she was in the right role, she could just do anything. And uh and you know, she went into T V and all that. But when I when I saw this last night or this morning, I was just like, Man, she was fantastic.
1: Well, it's like the part was written for her. Yeah. But um I did another movie with her after that called Wide Awake, where she played a nun.
2: Oh yeah. I Night Shyamalan movie. directed it. Uh-huh.
1: Um and she was she was really good in that too.
2: Uh who else would I, did I want to talk about? Um, oh, I'll
1: tell you something. So when we did the one sheet for that mm-hmm. movie for Beautiful Girls, they had made her face thinner. Oh, really? And she and she would not have it.
2: Yeah, she When pissed. she saw
1: it, she would not have it.
2: Did they change it and back? They
1: to, yeah, they had to change it back. Good for her. Mm-hmm.
2: I love that. And then in a sort of a small-ish part, Uma Thurman uh, signs on. And this was kind of...
1: Um, well, that was Scott's dream. Oh, to get really? Uma in it, yeah. I mean,
2: it had and to it be someone very, like very that. And it was very, very hard
1: to make her schedule work. It was really hard because uh, everyone was coming in and out with the schedule and she had to be boarded in such a way that she could finish her part. I remember I remember very clearly that.
2: It had to be someone like her. Like, I can't imagine anyone else in that role because this person comes into town. One of the themes of the movie is just, uh, through Michael Rappaport is sort of this obsession with beautiful women and models <laughs> and uh, and then, you know, she kind of sweeps, sweeps into town and takes everyone's breath away.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She was perfect for it, but it was, it it took a lot to get her, not to get her agree. It was, it took a lot. Or it took a lot to get her for the part. There was so much, it was after Pulp Fiction.
2: Oh, okay. Sure.
1: So it wasn't easy yeah, to make yeah. all of that happen. Yeah. Um, But you know, it's funny because, I did, I, I don't think, I think that Michael had done Zebrahead before he did Beautiful Girls. I think so.
3: Yeah. And then I had
1: done, um, I did Copland with him mm-hmm. and Paul Bearer with him. I spent a lot of time with Michael and he was young, you know, when I first met
2: him. I've met him a couple of times.
1: Uh huh. I he's don't a- think of him the way everyone else does. I don't think, I only think of him as from those days.
2: Yeah. I mean, he's a cool guy. He's, he's. Super nice guy. I met him at a podcasting uh, one time, and uh-huh. uh, I liked him a lot. I thought he was super cool.
1: Yeah, no, I'm working, so now I just um, optioned Steve Madden's biography. Steve Madden, the Shoe Guys, had a uh-huh. crazy life. Yeah, and Michael's attached to play the part. Is based on Steve, but it's not going to be all Steve. Uh huh. And Michael's going to play that part.
2: Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. So we're oh, getting great. back together. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and that's you know that's a big project for him.
1: Well, I think we're all lucky. And it'd be fun to work together. It yeah. he's perfect for it. I mean, the cute thing was with Natalie Portman because Natalie was 13 years old when we did it.
2: Okay, I was curious. So she, she played was 12 13. actually,
1: and she invited a couple of people to her bat mitzvah. Uh-huh. And when we had big dinners together, her mother would be at the dinner. It was hard, you know. Her mother balanced it very, very well. Uh-huh. She really did because the kid was younger than every. It was. It just. It just was handled really Well, that she wasn't made to feel like a little girl, but she. It it was just everyone was super appropriate. Um, it's funny because all the people in Hollywood, it was known as like the cool set to go to. So agents came there and they just hung out. They just wanted to be around. It was just a cool set, fun set to be on.
2: Oh yeah, just because mm-hmm. of that amazing cast and the and Ted. Team.
1: Ted really set a great tone. Ted yeah. was a very unique person. Very unique.
2: What a! How many movies had he done at this point?
1: He'd done uh, the Wrath. And oh, God,
2: that was such a good movie.
1: I think that's it.
2: Really? Man, I always forget that we lost him. That's just so tragic. I
1: don't. I definitely don't.
2: Boy, I forgot all he about died,
1: that. He died uh the night before my son's bris. So really? it was seven days after my son was born, and I got a phone call mm. and they said Ted died. I said, Ted who I just couldn't believe it.
2: What a talent, and you know what a
1: talent, what a great friend, guy it, you know great guy, unique guy, No one is like Ted, no one was like Ted was just something else, a whole other kind of person.
2: what was he like as a director like what 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 magic did he bring?
1: you know, I don't know what kind of magic he was just such a great guy and the way he brought everyone together.
2: Uh-huh
1: I can't really say I wasn't involved I really didn't think about that at that time,
3: mm-hmm.
1: I was young, you know, and I had other things to do. Once he was hired, it wasn't me who necessarily hired him. I did know him um, because he'd worked at MTV with a really good friend of mine uh-huh. from college, but um, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know about that yet. I wasn't, I wasn't that um, savvy at that point about things like that.
2: But I mean, that's that's one of the biggest parts of the job of a director, right? Is is your personality and managing personalities and bringing people together.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, Rob Marshall has that quality for sure as well. Definitely.
2: Well, I know I've kept you for a while. Do you have any other thoughts on uh, Beautiful Girls or anything else?
1: Um, you know, they were going to ch- the it's so sad because we were making the movie Flirting with Disaster at the same time as we were making Beautiful Girls.
2: We just covered that on the show.
1: What? That we were doing that at the same time?
2: No, Flirting with Disaster, that was uh, Michael Ian Black's favorite Oh, yeah, movie. yeah, I heard him. Yeah. But
1: we made that and actually, we had been speaking to Ben Stiller about directing Beautiful Girls. Oh. And he said that he wanted to be in Flirting with Disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, Instead? Yeah. Okay. If you had said to me that Flirting with Disaster is going to be a way bigger, a bigger hit than Beautiful Girls, no one would believe it.
2: it yeah, it I, can, was, I totally could see that. Yeah. Beautiful
1: Girls was the project. And what really hurt us, and I've learned a lesson and actually when iHeart came to me and they said that they wanted to change the title of my show from Billy Grammy Graham to call your grandmother. I was Mm. like, "Of sure. And they were shocked that I was so acquiescent. And the reason I learned was on beautiful girls, uh, about two weeks before we were supposed to open, they wanted to change the name because Showgirls had come out not long before it. Mm. And all the creative people, um, wouldn't um, wouldn't give into it. And they we should have, me too.
2: What was Not that the, I had so much. What was the title going to be?
1: I don't know what the new title was going to be. They didn't right. say, but just the notion of changing it from beautiful girls, just couldn't, we couldn't fathom it. Yeah. And it's stupid because what a thing is titled is no reflection really on the content. It's the marketing to get people to see it or listen to it. Right. And I learned that lesson.
2: Interesting. Well, Meryl, this has been great. Thank you for taking the time. We don't thank get uh, people of your caliber on this show much. So oh, thanks please. for sharing the, that insight for, for all this big time Hollywood stuff.
1: It's my pleasure. I love talking about that movie. I have to say it was a great time. It well, really was. And, all, and, all and I love stories. what it turned out.
2: Well, thank you. It was just fantastic.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. And yeah, we're in for a new season of Call Your Grandmother. And everyone should really check it out. It's it's a it's a really special special show, and it's not a major commitment. Like it's twenty five minutes an episode.
2: Yeah, totally agree. Very very cool episode. If you can, if you don't you listen to an episode and don't like it, you're I don't know you're a little you're a little <laughs> dead inside.
1: <laughs> all right. Well, you said it, not me. <laughs> all
2: right. Thanks a lot. All Meryl. right.
1: Take care. Thank all you. Right. Bye.
2: All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that. I got to tell you, I could talk to Meryl all day long and just. Basically listen to stories about the movies that she's worked on. I love this stuff. I love hearing insider stories about movies in Hollywood. And I just put it, put it right in my neck, everybody. Uh, maybe she'll come on again one day. Who knows? Maybe I can take her to lunch one day when I'm in New York. Who knows? She's a very nice person and uh, a force to be reckoned with in, in production. And I'm so glad that she has uh, decided to do her podcast, Call Your Grandmother with us uh, at iHeart. It's a super cool addition to our roster. And I hope to get to meet her in person one day. She's awesome. So big thanks to Meryl for coming on. Check out her show. Uh, Season two uh, was just announced that it was renewed. So more great grannies coming your way. And uh, I hope you enjoyed the show. And until next time, take care of yourselves and go watch one of Meryl Poster's great movies. Go watch Chicago again, that's my advice.
5: Movie Crash is produced and written by Charles Bryant and Noel Brown, edited and engineered by Seth Nicholas Johnson, and scored by Noel Brown here in our home studio at Ponce City Market, Atlanta, Georgia, for iHeartRadio.
2: For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
3: This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease,